Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the River Community Church podcast. If you want more information about the church or things that are going on, you can visit therivercc.com or you can check out our app at app.therivercc.com. Today's message comes from Pastor Steve Chapman. My name is Steve Chapman, in case this is your first time with us, and if it is your first time with us, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, But I've uh, uh, had the privilege of being here, and I'm excited uh, to be with you this morning. Uh, Next Sunday, uh, you want to be here. Uh, Our executive pastor, TJ Overstreet, is going to be bringing the message, and then after that, uh, our lead pastor, Steve Taboo, should be back from sabbatical, well-rested and refreshed and uh, ready to go, so we're looking forward to that. But I'm glad you're here this morning. Let me ask you a quick question. Have any of you ever heard of a sport called rugby? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of rugby. Uh, Sometimes it's confused with Australian rules football. They're similar, but a few differences. How many of you have actually seen a rugby match? Raise your hand if you've actually seen, oh, not many of you. Well, that's probably good. Uh, so here's an interesting thing about rugby, and I, I find it quite amusing. Uh, rugby is oftentimes referred to as a gentleman's sport. <laughs> Some of you are laughing. Uh, maybe, you know. So if you think about what is a gentleman, well, a gentleman is usually we think of someone who is, uh, you know, kind. Hi, Josie. Who is kind, who is considerate, who is well-mannered, proper, well-behaved, uh, you know, humble, doesn't think too highly of himself, considerate of others. I mean, these are characteristics, qualities uh, when we think of a gentleman, you know. And uh, we, we throw that around like, wow, he's, he's truly a gentleman. Well, you, know, you should act more like a gentleman, you know. I mean, so we understand the idea of gentleman. So knowing that, and then if you've ever experienced, seen a rugby match, you might think, how, how in the world is it known as a gentleman's sport? So just to help you out, if you've never seen or have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about rugby, uh, we put together a little montage here of some clips. Now let me say a little disclaimer here. If, if violence is, is not your thing, if, if human beings being hurt is not, your, you might want to just look down for the next 35 seconds, okay? So let's roll that tape. Here is rugby football. Ouch. You can see why it's known as a gentleman's sport, right? <laughs> right? A gentleman's sport. Uh, rugby, and by the way, <laughs> that was pretty uh, tame. Uh, I, I left out a lot of the blood and snot and some of that kind of stuff. That uh, is, uh, there's, there's some good ones, some good close-ups on YouTube out there, but uh, it's brutal. I mean, it's, it is a brutal sport. There's no pads. There's no helmets. There's, uh, if you're smart, you'll wear a, a mouth guard. But I mean, there's, it's, it's a rough sport. So the idea of that being a gentleman's sport, when you think of gentleman's sport, I think of golf, 
right? I mean, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's, there's usually not much violence, if any, I mean, or maybe shuffleboard. I mean, but I don't think I would describe rugby as a gentleman's sport. Now, uh, believe it or not, I actually played rugby when I was at Tech. Got a picture here from back in a long time ago, 1991. Played football there at rugby and or at Tech. Played rugby there at Tech, and uh, I can t- I can attest it is a brutal sport. Uh, I remember most of the Saturdays coming off of the the pitch after a match. I, the only way I knew how to describe how I felt was I felt crooked. I felt like my frame was not right. Uh, years later, you know, uh, a chiropractor would probably attest to that. It's like, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was rough. Uh, I remember one of my, the first game, one of the first games I ever played, we were up in Knoxville uh, playing uh, Tennessee, and it was pouring down the rain, and it was early on in the game, and I, I got hurt, a big old guy like just rolled over and like on my, my leg, my ankle, and I hit the ground and I was like, I, it's either broken or it's seriously sprained. I mean, something that bad. So I, and here's the thing in this gentleman's sport, uh, they don't stop for injuries. I mean, the, the play just, we had actually, they were videoing this game, and like there was one moment where the action was over here, and I was like, oh, that's when I got hurt, and then they keep putting the action, and the, and the camera scan, and I'm laying, I said, there I am, I'm just laying on the ground, I'm not, you know, and so finally there was a, a, a stop in the game, a couple of my teammates come over, they're like, see, you're okay, and I'm like, dude, I, I can't walk, I have really hurt my ankle, so they reach down, another guy comes over, they reach down, and they basically carry me straight off the field and just kind of plop me on the sideline. <laughs> well, all right, that's that. Okay, well, okay, thanks. And, and then went back to the game and played the game. I'm sitting here on the sideline, pouring rain. I don't know what's wrong with my ankle. And about, about 30 yards towards midfield, there was a little pop-up canopy where everyone that was actually attending this game in this horrible day, there was like nobody there, but they're all huddled around in this little pop-up tent out of the rain. And occasionally they would glance over at me and I was like, well, I guess the wise thing to do would be to at least crawl over to that canopy and get out of the rain, okay? I mean, I've obviously hurt my ankle, but I don't want to get pneumonia. So I start crawling, literally crawling to this canopy. I get there, I get underneath, and I just sort of plop down on the ground. Guy looks over me, he's like, dude, you okay? <laughs> like, what would make you think anything different? <laughs> I mean, and then he looks at me, he's like, you want a beer? <laughs> that, see, that, that was like the rugby magic medicine. <laughs> I was like, you want a beer? I was like, no, maybe some crutches? I don't know, but I mean, no, I was like, but, but that, 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 was, that was rugby. It was, I would not call it a gentleman's sport, although I will say there was one match, uh, a guy of another team, I, I kind of collided with him, and I remember it just out of instinct, out of my mouth, I said, oh, excuse me. <laughs> To which one of our teammates at halftime said, dude, did you seriously say excuse me? <laughs> it's like, I think I did. I think I did. Uh, that was about as gentleman as that game gets. It, it, gentleman's game, rugby, just don't seem to line up. Uh, well, this morning, I want to talk to you uh, about descriptions of God that don't seem to line up. That just don't, ah, that just doesn't seem to fit. And so we're going to go in the Old Testament uh, to the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. Uh, if you want to turn there, we'll put the scriptures on the screen. We've been reading through the Bible this year. And if you've been reading with us this past week, we read a lot of Isaiah's prophecy and wrapped up his, his writings. 
Um, and then kind of in there was this little book called Nahum, N-A-H-U-M, or as we call it where I grew up in East Tennessee, Nahum, Nahum, Nahum. So here's a prophet. Let me tell you what he's, what he's prophesying about. He's actually speaking against the ancient city of Nineveh. Now, you may recognize Nineveh. That was the city that God called Jonah to go to and prophesy against. It was a wicked city. And Jonah went to Nineveh and prophesied against them and told them they need to repent or God's going to destroy them. And they did. They repented. And God spared. And it was a wonderful thing. Well, about a hundred years later, Nineveh has forsaken God. They've become a wicked nation once again. And God speaks through the prophet Nahum here, and he's prophesying about them. But it's not so much the message to the Ninevites that I want you to focus on, but it's what he says as he describes God and his character to them that I want to I kind of lean on this morning. So Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, let's read this together. Look what it says here. He says, the Lord is a jealous God. He's filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. Verse three, the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lush pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade, and the green forests of Lebanon wither. Verse 5. In his presence, the mountains quake, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles, and its people are destroyed. Verse 6. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire. And the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. We'll stop right there for a second. So here's this description of God. When you think of God, when you describe God, do you think of him this way as a God who is a jealous God, who is full of vengeance and rage against his enemies, who is a God of fury, a God of great power and punishes the guilty. He dries up the oceans, the rivers disappear. Who can stand before his fierce anger or survive his blazing, his burning fury and rage? But this is how he's described here. And, and that's frightening. It's terrifying of, who, of, of, of his power and his, his, this, this rage, this fury. In, in verse 9, we won't, we won't have to look at that, but it, it, says, it says, he will destroy you with one blow. He need not strike twice. His power and so there's a description of God, and it's terrifying. But then notice what Nahum says in verse 7. It's like he takes this incredibly sharp right turn, and he says this in verse 7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust him. So it's a, it's a very opposite description here in the first these first six verses he describes this God who is jealous this God who is who is full of wrath and fury and great power and he unleashes this fury he unleashes this wrath towards his enemies as he punishes them it's this horrifying terrifying all-powerful all-consuming God and then he says but he's good and he's a refuge in the day of trouble and he's close he's near to those who trust him. So which is it? Is he this terrifying God 
full of fury and vengeance and wrath? Or is he this good God who is a refuge and he's close to those who trust him? Well, the answer is he's both. He's perfectly, absolutely, completely both. Wow, How, that, doesn't make, that doesn't make sense. How can you be a gentleman and play rugby? I guess if you say, excuse me, every now and then, maybe that's, I don't know. But how can he be both of these things? Well, there's two things you need to remember about God, okay? As we kind of unpack this, and I'll show you examples of, of, of what we're talking about here. Two things to remember about God. The first one, go to the New Testament, book of 1 John, all the way over to near the end of the New Testament, 1 John. And, and this is, there's two things I want you to see and, and keep in mind, hold close as we walk through here about God this morning, how he is perfectly both of these things, Okay. So first of all, God is a jealous God. He is a God full of wrath and his fury is, is no one can, uh, can su- uh, su- uh, survive under it. His wrath poured out towards sin, towards uh, uh, darkness and, and evil. It, no one can stand it. No one can stand up and no one can resist it. No one can survive that. I mean, it, it, he is a great and powerful God, okay? And he is that because of what we read in 1 John chapter one. John is, is reminding them of something that Jesus said And he says this in 1 John 1, 5. He says, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. And here it is. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And and these descriptions are complete. They're without exception. He speaks in absolutes. God is light and in him is no darkness, none. He is fully, totally, completely light. And, and light throughout the scripture is used to speak of uh, righteousness, holiness. God is righteous. He is totally, fully, completely righteous, holy. He is light. There is no darkness. There is no unrighteousness. There is nothing unholy about him, in him. Never has, never will be. He's completely, fully, holy, righteous. In him is light and there is no darkness in him. And therefore, because of that, the only posture, the only attitude he can have towards darkness, towards anything unholy is fury and rage and, and, and indignation because he is fully holy and righteous. So any unrighteousness, no matter if it's great like the Ninevites or if it's what we might say is small and not just a big deal, any unrighteousness, any darkness is an offense to a holy God. Now, some people look at that and say, well, that's arrogant. If I took that posture, that would be arrogance because I'm no more holier than you. But because he is fully holy, completely holy, there's no evil, no unrighteous in him. He's just simply being who he is. He has no option. It is the natural response to anything dark and unholy. And he hates it because he knows it destroys what he loves. So God is this God of wrath and fury towards unholiness because he is holy and he is light and there's no darkness in him. That's the first thing you got got to hold in mind. The second thing, go to the middle of the Bible, to Psalms 103. The second thing I want you to keep in mind about God, we learn from David, who is the writer of many of the Psalms in the Old Testament. And uh, he is accredited with writing the 103rd Psalm here. And I want you to listen to what David says in his description of God. In Psalms 103, verse 8, David writes and says this, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. 
Again, notice the use of absolute here. He is full of unfailing love. It's absolute. His love never fails. His compassion, his mercy, his grace, his long, it never fails. He is absolutely loving. He absolutely is full of compassion and kindness and long-suffering. And so it seems like how could those entities, how could those ideas coexist? You, you got to be either one or the other. This God of rage and wrath and fury or this God of unfailing love and compassion. God is fully and completely both of those things because he's God. And that, that henceforth, that is why he is so different from me, so unlike us, so above us, so higher than us. So keep in mind, God is Holy, absolute holy, light, no darkness, and he is also unfailing in his love. He is absolutely loving, absolutely compassionate, and long-suffering with us. He is both of these things. In the Gospel of John, in John's Gospel, John chapter one, he is described this way. And I want you to see this, and then we're gonna look at a couple of examples and show you how God, how this plays out and why it means so much to us. In John chapter one, the gospel of John chapter one, verse 17, it says this, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God, that's referring to Jesus, he is near to the Father's heart. Last line, he has revealed God to us. So in essence, what John's gospel is telling us here is that Jesus Christ is God and he has revealed God to us in the flesh. In other words, God, if God looked like us, if he put on a flesh suit like you and I have on this morning, this is what he would look like. This is how he would live. This is what he would say. This is what he would do. And so Jesus reveals God to us. And what it says there in verse 17 is it says this in describing him. It says that, that the law came through Moses, but God's unfailing love, we've seen that before in Psalms 103, he is, his love is unfailing. His unfailing love and his faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. That word faithfulness, there are many translations that those two words are translated grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So in other words, the grace is that unfailing love that unmerited favor, that, that kindness and compassion of God. The truth is the truth that God is light. He is holy and in him there is no darkness at all. And so Jesus reveals God to us and what he reveals is that God is both. He is fully truth. He is fully grace. He is fully a holy, righteous God and cannot look upon anything that is darkness or sinful or unholy. And at the same time, he is full of love and compassion and his loving kindness and compassion never fails. And get your mind around that. It's hard because I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm, I'm usually either hot or cold, right? I mean, that's just my flesh and, and I'm like, ah. I could never hold those two extremes, those two entities, those two completely and perfectly in my being. I, I, I couldn't do it. I would, I would kill you, right? Or I would be so lenient that you would never learn from anything. I mean, it's just, I, I can't do it. But God can because he's God. And let me show you how he does this. From, from, from history past to, to present, let me show you how God does this. Let me show you what this looks like, what we're talking about here. Go to Genesis chapter six this morning. 
Genesis chapter six, the earth has been created by God. He created paradise. He created the, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the things. He creates man. He puts him in this paradise. There's no sin. It's perfect. Of course, the, 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 the Satan, the enemy comes in. He tempts man and woman to sin. They sin against God. Sin enters the world. They're kicked out of the garden. And many, many generations have passed. We get to Genesis chapter six. And after several generations, after sin has entered the world, it has gotten really, really bad. Look at the description. Genesis chapter six, beginning of verse five, it says, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. It's very dark. Verse six, so the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. Look at that, just in that, those two sentences. He was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth because when a holy God looked at the fact that everything they thought or imagined was continually evil, a holy God looks at that with disdain, with disgust, with anger, with fury, and he's sorry he ever made them. But the God who is at the very same time full of love and compassion, his heart is broken by what he sees. You see that? Verse seven, this is the holy God's response to this darkness. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. Verse 13, drop down. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all, all out along with the earth. The fury, the wrath of a holy God towards darkness that has filled the earth. The only response is to destroy it. But remember, he is also fully, completely, always a God whose love is unfailing. He is, as the prophet Nahum said, he is a God of refuge and he's good. So in verse 14, God has come to Noah and said, Noah, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna wipe out all of humanity. That's pretty sobering. I mean, I can't imagine. I don't even know what Noah responded to that. It probably was just dumbfounded, okay? But then God looks at him and says, so build a boat, a big boat, Noah. Build an ark. And he explains to him how, you know, the dimensions and all this stuff. It's like, okay, why am I, why am I building an ark? Because the holy God who cannot look upon unholiness and unrighteousness is also a God of love and a God who is a refuge. And so he says, I'm gonna build a refuge for you. So he says, build an ark. And in verse 17, it says, look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, and you'll be saved in essence. And that's exactly what happened. All that was on that, that boat, every, every human, every, every animal, they were saved. And God unleashed his wrath on this darkness and this sin that had filled the earth and the rains and the, the waters of the deep, it says, broke up and the earth was totally flooded. And yet all that was in that ark, which is the refuge of God, were saved. And they were provided for. So here's a picture of a holy, just God unleashing his wrath towards darkness and sin and at the same time being a good God who is a refuge for his creation. It's a beautiful picture of God being able to be both of these in totality. Let's move forward in the Old Testament. 
They're spared. They come off the ark. They begin to repopulate the earth. Man continues to increase and fill the earth. And God calls his people. He comes to a man named Moses. And he says, you're going to lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. And they're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. But I'm a holy God. I'm a righteous God. And you are an unholy, ungodly people. You're prone to sin. You're prone to disobey. You're prone to follow false idols. And as a holy God, I can't stand for that. I have to destroy that. But I'm going to provide another refuge because I'm a God whose love is unfailing and I'm a God who is a refuge. And so he provides the refuge for, the, for his people under Moses' leadership, and that refuge was the law, the commandments and the decrees. And look what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. He says, these are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses to the people. You must obey them in the land you're about to enter and occupy. And you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Drop down to verse 14. You must not worship any of the gods of the neighboring nations. For the Lord your God who lives among you is, guess what? A jealous God. His anger will flare up against you and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. Chapter 7. Verse 9 and 10, he says this, Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. But he does not hesitate to punish and destroy those who reject him. Again, you see both the wrath of God, the posture of a holy, righteous God who is light and in him there is no darkness towards that which is unholy, anything which is ungodly. He unleashes his wrath, a jealous God, I will not tolerate sin and rejection of me. At the same time, providing a refuge, knowing you can never, never do this. And there's, I'm going to provide a tool for you, a refuge for you. It is the law. It is these commands, these decrees, these festivals, these celebrations, these, these sacrifices and offerings. Bring these things. When you sin, when you mess up, when you blow, when you disobey, bring these offerings, bring these sacrifices. And he goes into great detail of what it should look like. The day of atonement, the high priest, when the high priest would go in behind the veil and he would go into the presence of God and present the offering for the sins of the people and God would see the offering, see the sacrifice, put, that, put his wrath, put it, that, that sin off for a year. That is God providing a refuge for his people from his very own wrath. When Nahum says he is a God of refuge and he is a help, he is a refuge from trouble, the trouble he is your refuge from is the trouble that he brings his wrath towards sin and unrighteousness. And so once again, he provides this refuge for his people. But the reality is, none of these refuges that God has provided have been complete, have been the perfect refuge. God finally completes his plan, this God who is full of loving kindness, who is perfectly loving, who is a refuge. He brings the fulfillment. He brings the final refuge, the refuge that will provide refuge from the wrath of God for all of eternity. And he brings it through his son, Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter three, verse 23, the scripture reminds us of this truth about us. Romans three twenty-three, the apostle Paul writes, and he says, for everyone has sinned. 
We all fall short of God's glorious standard, all of us. Everyone in this room, everyone that's ever been in this room, everyone that's ever come before us, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents, George Washington, the founding fathers, the kings of England, the empires of ages past, all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard and fall short of God's glory. We all have sinned. We are all, so we are all guilty before this holy, righteous God who is who in his righteousness, his only posture towards sin and unrighteousness is it is destroyed. It is evil. It is darkness. It cannot abide in my presence. And yet this same God, because of his loving kindness, always provides a refuge. Romans chapter six, verse 23 says this, because of our sin, verse 23 of Romans six says, the wages of sin is death. The wages, what you earn. We get that. If you work a job, you get a wage. You do this, you get paid for it. The wages, the payment of our sin, because we are sinful, because we are unholy in the presence of our creator who is a holy, righteous God, there is no darkness in him. The wages for our sin, what we earn, what we deserve is death eternal destruction and separation from a holy, righteous God. He cannot have fellowship. It's not open for discussion or debate. A holy, righteous, no darkness God has no fellowship with sin, no fellowship with darkness. It can't be in his presence. And so it must be punished, must be dealt with. And so that is, what, that is our destiny. As sinners before God, a holy God, our destiny, our wage is death. But, Paul says... Because our God is both a God of, of righteousness and, 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 and towards sin and rape, he is also a God whose loving kindness never fails. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The duality of a holy, righteous God and his posture towards sin is death and yet the God who is a refuge, the God is full of love and his love never fails. He provides the refuge and the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God always initiating the refuge and to provide it and he does it here through his son Jesus. John three sixteen, perhaps the most famous uh, verse in all of scripture. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The ultimate refuge for the trouble that a righteous God brings towards unrighteousness is Jesus Christ. And we have to realize, it says, God loved the world so much that he gave his son. He gave his son. And when you look at the cross, here's what you need to see. When we see the cross, when we see the son of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, walking among us, he was, he was taken, he was beaten, he was, he was stripped, he was humiliated, and he was ultimately nailed to a cross. And we look at that and the brutality and the, and the mockery and the shame and, and the ridicule and the pain and the anguish that he endured physically on the cross. It is absolutely nothing compared to what took place in the spiritual, in the supernatural, because on that cross, that cross is a picture of the wrath of a holy, righteous God being unleashed on unrighteousness, on sin, on everything that is unholy. It is the reason when Jesus hung on the cross and the gospel writers tell us at one moment, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son and the Father, never separated from eternity past, lived in perfect union, perfect harmony, perfect fellowship because they were holy and righteous and no darkness. At the cross, the Son of God, the Holy Son of God became sin. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, 20, the Bible says, he made him to be sin. He made Jesus to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He took your sin, my sin, the sins of humanity past, put them on Jesus. And in that moment, the son of God became disgusting to the holy, righteous father. And the only response to that sin of humanity, which now had been put up on his son, was to destroy it. And the wrath of God was unleashed on the son. And therefore the son cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the only reason is because God is holy and righteous and his righteousness cannot tolerate unrighteousness and his son was now unrighteous thanks to you and me. That is a frightening, horrible image of the cross. And yet it is very accurate. That's what a holy, righteous God does to sin. You think for a second the God of the New Testament tolerates sin, you're gravely mistaken. If you think he's a God of tolerance, you're totally missing what the scripture says. He unleashed the fury of his wrath towards sin at the cross. So much so that the earth went dark, many had to turn away. It was a horrible, horrible picture. And yet, the strangeness, the mystery of it all is that it is both a horrible image and is both the most beautiful image in all of history. Because on the cross, the cross is a place where the wrath of a holy God is unleashed, but the cross is also a refuge for all who would come and believe, who would stand underneath what that cross represents, the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy, and would be shielded from that wrath, would find a refuge from the trouble, which is the wrath of a holy God towards sin, your sin and my sin, which we were no longer paying the price for because Jesus stepped in to pay that price and God provided the refuge for his own wrath through his son. And he emptied his wrath and so therefore the cross is, while at the same time, a horrible picture of the wrath of a holy God and what he thinks of sin, it is also a picture of a loving God who provides a refuge for that which he loves. Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. In Ephesians chapter one, this is what the apostle Paul writes to the church. It reminds him of this great truth. Ephesians chapter one, he says this, in verse six, so we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom. He provided, in other words, he provided a refuge with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. In other words, he is reminding us that this holy, righteous God, because of his great love for us, he has provided a refuge for us from, from what we rightly deserve because of our sinfulness. We rightly deserve to experience and receive the wrath of God, but because God is at the same time perfectly loving and completely righteous and, and loving and his love never fails, he provided a refuge through his son and he unleashed the wrath on his son and not on you or me, all who would come to Jesus and believe. So in light of that, here's the question. In light of that truth, how, what is the response? What is the response to that? When I think of this, when I think of 
the refuge that God provided for me in his son, shielding me from the wrath of his fury, the wrath of his righteousness towards my sin through his son. I always come back to this passage. I think it is the only response in Psalms 103 again, the Psalm of David. At this time in verses one and two, David says this. He says, let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. Let all that I am. In other words, let the totality of my existence, the totality of my being, the totality of my life, praise him. And that goes way beyond just singing a few songs on Sunday morning. That is simply the capstone. That is simply be the highlight, you know, the culmination. I come and I gather with like-minded believers to sing worship songs to the Lord together. But it is because the totality of my life is a praise to him. What I do, what I say, how I act, my attitudes, my actions towards others, how, how, I, how I live my life, what kind of husband, what kind of father, what kind of son, what kind of daughter, what kind of worker, what kind of employer, what kind of teammate, what kind of friend, classmate, neighbor that I am, the totality of my being is an offer of praise to God, a God who is holy and righteous and, I, and does not give me what I rightly deserve, which is his wrath towards my sin, but he sheltered me from that vengeance and that rage through his son. And by placing my faith and trust in him, I am, I am protected from that wrath through Jesus. He is the ultimate eternal refuge for me. I am in Christ. And, and the exchange is that he made him to be sin. He made Jesus for, to be my sin. And he gave me the righteousness of Christ. And so I stand before this holy, righteous God, undeserving of grace and mercy, undeserving of even life in his presence. But I stand before him. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 16, I can come boldly to the throne of grace because I have received that gift of salvation and freedom and forgiveness of my sin through Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate refuge for us. And I can stand before him, not ashamed, not afraid, but fully redeemed. And so let the entirety of my being praise the Lord. It is the only response I can give in light of what he's done for me. Amen. And when I think that God... His son, not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my sin, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. We sang that old hymn growing up in church. Took me years to really grasp the meaning of the words. When I think, when I think, my God, holy and righteous, and his own son, who was holy and righteous, he did not spare him, but he gave him in my place because he is also a loving God and he wants me to be with him forever.
And so he provides a refuge. I am eternally grateful that many years ago I chose, just as Noah chose to get on the ark and escape the wrath of God, just as the nation of Israel chose to come and bring the sacrifices according to the law and escape the wrath of God, I chose to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior many years ago and have escaped the wrath to come. I will spend eternity with Christ. I will spend eternity with the countless millions who have done likewise through the years, have accepted Christ, had chosen the refuge over destruction. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you too have accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, I pray that you will be filled and overwhelmed with the same passion, the same expression that the psalmist is when he said, let all that I am, let the entirety of my being praise him. Let my life be a continual song of praise to the one who has been a refuge for me from his wrath. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my prayer would be that today, today, your heart would be stirred. You would see that what we deserve is the wrath of a holy God, but what he offers us is a refuge through his son, Jesus Christ, an eternal refuge. And if you've never accepted and received that refuge, I would encourage you this morning Immediately after the service, we have a prayer room here in the back. You can walk back there to prayer room. There'll be some folks back there. Would love to talk to you about what it is to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, to become a Christian, to receive this great refuge. You can go out in the lobby, go to the connections table right over here in the corner. There'll be some folks there and just say, hey, I'd like to talk to someone. We would love, you're not an inconvenience at all. We would love to talk to you this morning. There's a card in front of you, probably in one of those chairs. You can pull that little card out. Just fill it out. And just right on there, I'd like to talk to someone about this refuge, about knowing Christ as my Savior. And then as you go out, there's these gray boxes on the wall. Just drop it in that box. What's going to happen? Somebody from our team will reach out to you this week and just say, hey, you said you'd like to talk to someone. We'd love to talk to you. I trust that God will move in your heart and give you the courage if that's what you need to do this morning. God is a God who's perfect and holy and and his wrath is poured out towards unrighteousness, but he is a God who's full of love and he never, never intended for any of us to experience his wrath. The Bible tells us that it is not his will that any should perish, that any of his creation should experience his wrath, but all should come to repentance. In Ephesians 1, it goes on there and talks about how that God gave his son and he adopted us because it's what he wanted to do. It's what he wanted to do. I don't know how he does it, that's why he's God, that he can be fully righteous and holy and, and have nothing but wrath and, and vengeance towards sin and, and, and unholiness and ungodliness. And at the same time, he is perfectly loving and he always provides a refuge. He is the refuge from the own trouble and wrath that is his natural response towards my sin. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty wonderful. And I'm thankful for it. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for grace and truth. The truth that reminds me, God, that I am unworthy, that I am unholy, God, in and of myself, I bring nothing to you, God, that would cause you to want to have anything to do with me. Lord, I sin, I fail, I mess up. And yet, because you are a loving, holy God, you have provided a refuge for me, an eternal refuge through your son, Jesus Christ. You poured out your wrath on him rather than me. And God, I am eternally grateful. Thank you, God, for opening my eyes to see that truth, to make me aware of that glorious truth of your grace. 
Lord, I trust your Holy Spirit to move in our hearts and our lives this morning, whatever we need to do, whatever our response. Lord, for some, it may just be a response of brokenness. God, I am so sorry. I have, I have not offered to you a life of praise. I have been so, so selfish. I have really trampled over this gift of grace and this refuge that you have provided. I have, I have belittled it, Lord. I have failed to take it serious. I have failed to stand in awe of the goodness of your grace and your mercy and the refuge you provided from your wrath through the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe it's just a posture of brokenness and saying, God, God, forgive me for that and let me just be transformed that my life is an offering of praise and thanksgiving and gratitude towards you. Or perhaps it's this morning someone needs to realize that I have never accepted that gift of refuge. I have never trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. God, whatever the response needs to be, I trust you to lead us correctly and rightly to that place. I trust you to do that. Thank you, God, for the opportunity, the privilege to present your word. I trust your spirit to do what only you can do in our hearts and lives. Thank you for loving us so much. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Hey guys, thanks so much for checking us out online today. If you want more information about the church or things that's going on here, be sure to check out theriverCC.com or download our app and visit us there. Also, as we go through the Bible this year, we want to help keep you engaged on what's being read and talked about each week. To do that, we have a podcast called The Word This Week, which will recap each week's readings, as well as have special guests who will talk about what God showed them that week. So be sure to check that out on all podcast streaming platforms. And again, thanks so much for checking us out online.